Cliff, when should we expect you to come carol at our door? All right. <laughs> uh, well, if you are staying here, then I encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi. Uh, we're going to be at the very end of chapter 2, going into the beginning of chapter 3 today. The title today is, Does God Delight in Evil? So that's the question that we're going to wrestle with. It's a question that really every person at some point in their life wrestles with. Now, we're not going to look at the origin of sin and the origin of evil this morning. Rather, what we're going to do is look at God's response to sin. What is his response to the evil that is in this world? And I, and I want to encourage you, God's word it does not shy away from hard topics like evil and sin. Rather, it leans into that. And so what we're going to do, do this morning is lean into the very word of God that we would see the truth and experience the comfort that God has for us in his word as we wrestle with this topic. And what I want us to see is that God does not delight in evil, but as the perfect judge, he will punish every sinful act. And so the main point is that God responds to the accusation of injustice by sending his covenant messenger to purify and judge the rebellious. That's, that's the main point. That's what Malachi wants us to see this morning, is that God's response is to send a messenger. And so we're going to look at that today. If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and stand, and we're going to read chapter 2, verse 17, to chapter 3, verse 5. We do stand here at the reading of God's word as a means of honoring God as our Father and reminding ourselves that his word is given to us by him for the purpose of equipping us for every work that he calls us to do. So chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and he will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then... I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have given us uh, this text today that speaks about evil, speaks about the presence of evil, speaks about how we wrestle with it and often how we misunderstand it. But then, God, you also clearly communicate the truth of what your response is to evil and that, God, you are a perfect judge and that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to bring salvation and to bring judgment. 
And Lord, I pray that we would understand the purpose and the role of your son Jesus and what he accomplished at his first coming and what he will accomplish at his second coming. God, I pray that as we look at your word today that our hearts would be comforted, that we would have peace as we see the truth of your word, and that, God, we would understand the weight of the gospel and how we are to share it with those in this world. God, in your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, so we begin with the question, the question that really verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 17 gives us, really, where is the God of justice? So verse 17 begins with an accusation, and, and we see that they have wearied God. And Israel, in their arrogance, reply, replies again by saying, how have we wearied you? They have concluded that God must be unjust because of all the evil that has been done around them. And so very likely, they're discouraged by the prosperity and by the strength of the surrounding pagan nations. And due to God's perceived inactivity, they have concluded he's either blind or he delights in evil. Regardless, the God of justice has failed them. And so there's two things I want to point out. Like verse, we could, we could have spent the whole day in verse 17. There's so much there. But two things just to bring out. Number one, let's first answer the question, what does it mean that God is wearied? Like, like that's, that's interesting when, when we're given that. That's this anthropomorphic language uh, talking about um, attributing human traits to God. So, so what is that? Are we to think that God is like a tired parent who has been putting up with his children crying and whining all day, and he's at the end of his patience, he's frustrated, and he's just ready to throw in the towel, and and the kids will be going to bed early tonight because he's just so tired of the incessant crying and whining or questions that the kids ask nonstop? I mean, is, is that the picture that Malachi wants us to have? Is God frustrated? Has his plans been thwarted? No. Like, by all means, that is not the understanding that we're to have of God. We see all throughout Scripture that God is infinitely powerful and supreme. We see that nothing can thwart his will. That's the conclusion of Job at the end of the book. We see that he is eternal life, he is joy, and his joy is boundless and unending. In fact, in Isaiah 40, verse 28, this is, this is what we read. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So which is it? Malachi says God is wearied. Isaiah says God cannot be wearied. So how are we to understand this? When we read that God is wearied, we must realize that that language is meant to tell us more about Israel than it does God. As we've walked through this book, we see that they are relentless in their religious skepticism. Ever since chapter 1, Israel has doubted God's love, his faithfulness, his goodness, and now they doubt his justice. Their unbelief has transformed God really into a monster now. Where they say he's not faithful, he's not loving, he's not just. In fact, 
He probably sees everything and he delights in all the evil in the world. So the first point, we understand that the weariness of God is really not that he is worn out, but it's to tell us about the relentless skepticism of the people. They haven't just one time something bad happened. They're going, oh, how do I understand this in God? But it's through now a repetition of thoughts and a cycle of life that they're in now that they doubt and question God at every single level. And the second point that we need to understand is the presence of evil often leads to the questioning of God. And you probably know that. You've probably experienced that. But because God has not judged evil in the way and in the time that Israel wants, they've concluded he must delight in it. And what we see all throughout Scripture, we through, especially through the book of Psalms, Ecclesiastes, um, the book of Jeremiah, that all will wrestle with this topic is how do we understand the presence of evil with an everlasting, all-powerful God? In fact, Psalm 73, I would encourage you to go read that as homework later today. Just read it and understand what the mindset is of the psalmist and how he's wrestling with what's happening on earth and the fact of who God is. But let me just read a couple verses. This is Psalm 73, verse 3. He goes, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verses 12 and 13, he says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I mean, think about this. Have you ever questioned God because of the prosperity of the ungodly? Those who go to church, those who read their Bible, those who seek to worship God, oftentimes, and you could argue the majority of them, seem to have even more difficult lives than unbelievers who profane God with everything that they do. Or maybe you have doubted God's goodness because of some sort of pain or suffering or evil that you have witnessed or experienced. I had a lady call this last week, and she asked for financial help. And so throughout our conversation, I always try to, when someone calls, say, are you, are you attached to a church? Do you, do you know the gospel? And she told me, oh, um, I know the gospel. I've gone to a Christian school, but my husband died years ago, so no longer. So because of that, she has stopped believing in God, and she no longer needs church or any type of religion. She's no different than Israel right here, where she's now becoming a religious skeptic because of the evil that she sees, the evil that she's witnessed, the fact that tragedy has struck. She has, based upon her experience, concluded that God is no longer worthy of worship, which is exactly where Israel is. Pain, death, evil, suffering, they often lead to the very question of God. We need to know that. That's helpful for us as a church. So when we see people who are experiencing things, we don't stay away from them, but we move towards them to give them the comfort and remind them of the truth of God's word. I mean, just think about it. Think about it. Currently, the war in Ukraine. The abortion battle that rages all over the world. Here in the United States, our political culture is seeking to redefine marriage. There's an attack on the family structure of the home. Our emails and phones are bombarded with messages of those who want to take advantage of us financially. And there's, there's the, the persecution of Christians 
all over the world. If you remember a few weeks ago when Matt Smith was here, Jatandra has been in jail for 50 days at that point, and he sent an email, our, mess, um, our Project 92 uh, director of the missions that we support, sent an email, I believe it was this last week, that said there's over 50 missionaries in India who have been in jail for quite some period of time now and have no idea when they'll be coming out. Their families have been kicked out of the villages. Their houses have been destroyed. They now, they now live in the forest where they beg for food and they live off rice and water. And that's the cost of now being a Christian in this world. And so it's not hard to see that sin and evil flourish around us. And by simply looking at the world, we can feel... It, or it can feel chaotic, and we can wonder, is God on his throne? I mean, it's not too hard of a stretch to think about Israel at this moment going, where is the God of justice? I think we could all put ourselves there at some point in our life. But this is why it's so important that we do not simply allow experience or perception to define our God. We come back to his word, and through the lens of scripture, we understand God and this world. Never the other way around. If we start with our experience and try to understand the world and God, we will always transform God more into our image. We always must start with scripture and let it transform how we see and understand God and the world. And I want you to know, like, we have the answer. Like when the, when the world wrestles with evil, when they're going, why does this happen? We don't need to sit back and go, man, I don't know, that's a good question. We have the answer, and more importantly, we have the solution. And so that's what we're going to look at now. What is God's response to injustice? And in Malachi chapter 3, we see God sends two messengers. And so we'll look at them one at a time. We'll start with messenger number one, and we see that he prepares the way. And if you look at chapter four, verse five, just one page over, it tells us that this prophet will be like Elijah. And if you go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each of those gospels will tell you that this figure is John the Baptist. All of them quote the book of Malachi and say this is fulfilled in John the Baptist. And so what is the role of John the Baptist? He is the one who prepares the way for the second messenger. This messenger of the covenant, the one that we know is Jesus Christ. Now this is a very common practice when a king would visit a, a, a nation or a, a, um, another city. He often would send messengers ahead of him to prepare the way. That's exactly what John the Baptist is doing. He's preparing the people. The king is coming. Therefore, repent and obey God. In fact, this is what he says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me, the one I'm preparing the way for, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, meaning this purifying, cleansing fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So there's a gathering and a cleansing that he does, and there's a judgment and a burning that he will do. So we have these two roles 
that John the Baptist is saying the second messenger is going to come and do. And we know that that second messenger is Jesus Christ. And so we now look, the messenger number two, he's the one who brings the new covenant. And and Malachi gives us four descriptions of him, starting in verse one. Number one, we're told he is the Lord. And notice that's capital L, lowercase O-R-D. That's the word for Adonai. He's communicating that this is the Messiah. This is the king. This is the one that we have been waiting for. This is the messenger who will conquer the enemies of God and bring forth the blessings of God. So we got messenger number one. He prepares the way for the second messenger, the one who fulfills really the hopes of the entire Old Testament to bring forth the kingdom of God. Number two, we see he will suddenly come to his temple. What's really important to note there is whose temple he comes to. He comes to his temple. What we understand all throughout Scripture, and as we come into the New Testament, it is made clear Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but he's not a created being. He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. So the Father sends his Son, who has lived with him for all of eternity, to the temple, to the very people of God. And we see that he is the one, number three, he is the one you delight in. There possibly could be some irony with that. Because if you go back to chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Everyone who does good, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. So God delights in evil. That's what they're saying. And now Malachi is saying, the one you delight in is coming. There could be some irony. You you delight in him, but, but not really. Or it could just be talking about Jesus is the one who will give justice the very thing that you're asking for. And number four, he is the messenger of the covenant. When we look at the Old Testament, we see that there's a, there's a covenant given. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. It did not bring freedom. Rather, it was given so that it would highlight and amplify the sinfulness of man. And what it communicates is that we need a new covenant, a better covenant. This is what Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, all communicates that we need a new covenant. A covenant that actually will save us from our sins. And I want you just to think about the season that we're in. We're in the Christmas season. What do we celebrate at Christmas? Jesus, the birth of Jesus, right? Like You don't have to be shy. It's an easy one. The birth of Jesus. And, and what, what is Malachi telling us? Who's coming? Jesus. So Christmas is the very beginning of this fulfillment. So we're looking for the one who will save us from our sins, bring forth the new covenant, and that's, that's exactly in the season we're in. I was talking to someone the other day, and they're like, oh, what Advent series are you in? I was like, well, I'm preaching through the book of Malachi, and they kind of look back and like, does that work? Yes, it works. He's literally saying, look for Christmas. There's going to be one who comes, and what does the angel tell Mary? And I think it's uh, Matthew 1, 21, The son whom you will have, Jesus, will save his people from what? Their sins. This is exactly the season that we're in. So as we're in Christmas, I just want you to be thinking, we're celebrating the birth of the king, the one who brings forth the new covenant, the one we're reading about right here in the book of Malachi. He's come to bring peace on earth. And so we need to then ask, so 
So how is Jesus the answer? So the people are going, does God delight in justice? Who is this God? Why is he not acting? So God responds, oh, let me tell you what I'm doing. I said, messenger number one, he prepares the road for messenger number two. Messenger number two is the one who is my response to evil in this world. And so in order to act, in order to understand that, we need to remember that when, we, when the Old Testament speaks about the coming of the Messiah, it often does it with the, with the phrase, the day of the Lord. And, and we'll see that in chapter 4. Um, but, uh, so in a sense, Israelites in the Old Testament, they really had two days on their calendar. They had this day and that day, the day of the Lord. That's, that's the day that they're hoping for. That's the day that they're waiting. That's the day that they know when the Messiah comes, everything changes. However, when we read about the day of the Lord and when we come into the New Testament, we realize that often it refers to to the two comings of Jesus, really the first coming or the second coming. And sometimes it kind of feels like it jumps back and forth. A helpful way to think about this is think of looking at a mountain range from a distance. And you, you might see two peaks, and they appear from a distance as if they're right next to one another. But if you were to stand on one of those peaks, you see that the other peak is there's a great distance that divides them. And, and that's the way the day of the Lord works. It looks forward to these mountain peaks, and it looks like they're right next to each other, and not until you come to the New Testament do you realize that it refers to the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And as we're looking at the text here, we're going to see that it refers to both of these comings. And so, number one, we see the messenger judges all who rebel against God forever. Now, there's aspects of, of Jesus' judgment that he brings at his first coming. The flipping of the tables, various things that he does is a foreshadowing, really, of the judgment that is to come. But primarily, we know that this is referring to the second coming of Christ. So the one that we're all waiting for at this moment. The beginning of verse 2 and verse 5 speak of the judgment that, verse, that Jesus will bring. And notice what verse 2 says. It says, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? And the word stand is, is a military term. It's who can stand against the coming of the Lord? Of course, this is a rhetorical question that we're to go, well, no one can. In essence, God is saying, you, you want judgment? You're asking for my judgment? Oh, you better be very careful for what you're asking for. After all, Israel's not a faithful people. We just got done. If you go back to last week, do you remember the word that was used five times to describe the people of God? Faithless. They're faithless people. And in fact, they're in the very same condition that Israel was in 300 years ago, when 300 years prior to this text, when the book of Amos was written. Listen to what Amos says in chapter 5, verse 18. He turns to Israel and he says, Woe to you! Who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is not darkness, is it not? It is darkness and not light. What are you saying? For you? You've rejected God. You're not living in obedience to God, and you want the day of the Lord? You think that's going to be a light for you? Why would you want Jesus to come in judgment when you don't live for Jesus? 
We need, we need to be careful. When we are so confident of our righteousness that we desire the full outpouring of God's judgment on the world, just, just be careful that you're not the very recipient of that judgment. Right now, Israel is blinded by their self-righteousness, and we can be too. Now, we're to desire God's judgment, but, but we need to examine our hearts prior to doing that. Now, in verse 5, we see Jesus coming to judge the world. There's a final day of judgment that is coming. The hourglass of the presence of evil in this world is coming to an end. And when Jesus returns, he said he will be fully dealt with at that time. No one on that day will say, where is the God of justice? No one will ask that question. In fact, I want to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. I think it's up on the screen. This is Paul. He's talking about the coming of Jesus. Notice, notice what Paul says. He says, Jesus will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the, glory, of the, of the Lord and from the glory of his might. God's judgment is suffering under the eternal flame of fire. In fact, in Malachi 4.4, it says that uh, that day is like a burning oven where all unbelievers will become like stubble. In Revelation 6, we're told that God's judgment is so torturous, so horrific, that the unbelievers in the world will cry out for the rocks to crush them rather than face the very judgment of God. Scripture gives pictures, like, like the judgment will be like a lake of fire or the eternal gnashing of teeth to give us this, this horrific view, this image of what that will look like on that day. So when we come to Scripture and we say, does God delight in evil? No. No, he hates evil, and it will all be judged one day. And this is a very sobering reality and we, because of this truth, we need to be praying for those in this world. We need to pray for the unbelievers in this world. We need to pray that they would see the truth, they would hear the truth, that they would believe in Jesus Christ, and they would experience the, the salvation that Christ gives. So what I want to do, I just want us to pause, because I think when we're in Scripture, we need to think, how do we respond to Scripture? And when we read about the judgment of God, we need to, we need to pray. We need to pray for ourselves, and we need to pray for our loved ones. We need to pray for our neighbors. We need to pray for our coworkers. We need to pray for the people who are made in this world in the image of God and do not yet know God. And so I just, I just want to pray right now. And as I pray, I want you just to think, who are those in my life that I know? Who are the unbelievers that I know that do not know Jesus, that you, God has placed you in their life? So you could be a means in which they would hear the testimony of Jesus Christ. So let's just pray, and you pray, and then we'll, we'll, we'll move forward in the sermon afterwards. Father, Father, your judgment. And God, we, we love that there's a day coming in which evil will be judged. And yet, God, that is a, is a hard day, is a sobering day, realizing that your full wrath unrestrained will come upon those who do not yet know you. And Lord, I pray for, for me, I pray for those that are in this room, 
that you would place a burden upon our heart, upon our minds of those who are in our life that we know that do not yet know you, that they're on a one-way road to hell. And God, I pray that we would be burdened night and day with their names burned into our minds, that we would be praying for them, that we would be looking for opportunities to to show the love of Christ and to share the truth of Jesus Christ with them. God, we have the answer. You have saved us by your grace, not because we earn it, not because we deserve it, but all by your grace. And so we may we go out boldly. May we not worry on how the world will respond. May we not care if they laugh at us, if they mock us, if they unfriend us, or whatever the consequences, Lord, may we simply obey you, and may we share the truth of your word, that more people would know who your son is, the hope of this world, the peace that you bring, and that our sins are dealt with at the cross. And so, God, may we be a people, may we be a people zealous to share your truth zealous to share the name of your son. And Lord, I pray for every single one of us that as we think of those who are placed in our life and we know that they are unbelievers, that God, we would not rest until we have shared the gospel. May we have a a soul that continues to stir, desiring to share the hope with them, desiring to share your word and truth. And God, we ask that you do what you do. Give grace and save. God, may you save them. Save them through imperfect vessels that we are. In your name, Jesus, amen. I encourage you, be praying. Pray regularly for the unbelievers in your life and for those in this world. Pray for the missionaries that we have that are risking their lives to share the gospel. Um, I briefly just want to touch on verse 5, and then we'll look at the second purpose of Christ. Verse 5 gives a list of sins. When we read lists of sins, that's not for us to point fingers at other people and go, yeah, I know people like that. Yeah, that's my neighbor, that's my wife, that's my children, you know, that's my husband, you know, like whoever comes in your mind. That's not the point of the list of sins in Scripture, and we're given quite a few lists. Revelation 21, 8, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, we're given lists in Scripture, but they're given to us so we examine ourselves. Think about it. Why does God give Israel this list? Is it so they go, oh man, these unbelieving nations sure hope they're ready for the day of the Lord. No, he's giving it to Israel because they're not ready for the day of the Lord. So he gives it to them, says, wake up, examine yourself. And so as we go through this, we're going to do it kind of quickly, but I encourage you, examine yourself. Is there any of these truths that are in me? And if so, repent, believe in Christ, and he will always bring forgive, give forgiveness So number one, sorcery, I'm venturing to say, not many of you are into witchcraft this morning, many of you have done blood sacrifices today, I'm venturing to say that, but I I thought it was helpful, so I want to read a quote, this is what one commentary said, which just kind of brought this, this sin that feels like it's out there, and it brought it right to home, so he says this, The reality is that each one of us is a sorcerer at heart. So when I read this, I was like, hmm, tell me more. Sorcery is not just about tarot cards and voodoo dolls. It's in essence, sorcery is attempting to manipulate supernatural powers to serve our own ends. 
That means that people who try to use religion to serve themselves rather than giving themselves completely to God are effectively sorcerers. When we go to church as a means to make our lives run more smoothly, we're indulging in functional sorcery. I was like, oh, now that kind of makes sense. The wielding of, of religious means in order to, to, to change our circumstances and things around us. Well, that is often what we do. I'll read my Bible. I'll do this. I'll do that. Therefore, God now should do this. And so I just think through what is the reasons behind your worship, why you read, why you gather here on Sunday. Adultery. Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you've lusted after another woman, you've committed adultery. Uh, so if anyone has committed lust... We've committed adultery, so I'm just going to say we're, we're all guilty. Liars, that one kind of speaks for itself. I'm just going to venture to say we're, we're all guilty there too. Uh, those who have oppressed others, those who exploit and take advantage of others. And then it just speaks about uh, possibly workers, widows, orphans, aliens, and strangers. They will be judged. And I just want you to think about it. CRT, critical race theory, critical theory, has it all wrong. Like, it's simply a modern-day example of thinking that God delights in evil, therefore we need to be done with Christianity because we're going to come up with an ungodly alternative to how we fix the oppression in this world. But yet we're told that Christianity deals with the oppression in this world. Ultimately, it comes on that day of the Lord, which will be his second coming, which is the day we're waiting for. And then, of course, the last one that we're told is the failure to fear God. Which, as we go on from this, in the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4, he regularly speaks about the fearing of God. And to fear God is, is really to rightly worship him and to know him and to love him, to live in a alignment with God. Is that any moment we worship anything other than God is a failure to fear God, which I'm going to then say we're all guilty of that as well. Every single person is guilty of, break, of breaking God's word, of breaking God's law. We all deserve the full outpouring of God's wrath. And notice what it says in verse 5. Who is the witness against us? Like, just look. Who's the swift witness? Who is it? This is that interactive moment. We do this every week. This is that interactive time. It's literally, it's right there. Who is it? It's God. God is the one, and, and swift means expertly trained. So, so the perfect witness, the one who knows every single thing about you. So if you're going, well, you know, I'm really probably pretty good. God knows your heart. He sees everything that you've ever done. There is nothing off limits to God. Nothing off limits. So he knows everything there is about you. So if you're going, well, I don't know, I mean, I'm a lot better than that guy. It doesn't matter who you're better than because you're not aligned with God. And no one is good enough to enter into the kingdom of God based upon their own merits, based upon their own righteousness. So we've all failed. We've all deserved the outpouring of God's wrath, which is why the answer is Jesus. Jesus will come in judgment, but at his first coming, we see the messenger purifies a people who worship God forever. So in verse 2, Jesus is compared to two things. He's compared to refiner's fire and fuller's soap. Now, refining fire and soap, they don't destroy things. They cleanse things. They make things purified. Look at verse 3. It says, God will make his people pure like a refiner moves the dross from silver. So silver is a really cool thing. You can get on YouTube and check this out. But when you heat up silver, 
all the impurities will, will come up out of it, and they'll get burned off, and, and silver will, the silver will turn perfectly into glass, and it will reflect the image of the refiner. And just think about that. That's exactly what now Jesus has come to do, that he would save us from our sins so we would perfectly reflect his image. And there's two ways that he does this, and they're inseparable from one another. So it's not like, I'll take my pick. They're both. Number one, Jesus pays for our sins at the cross. This is what he does at his first coming. Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He comes and stands in your place and my place at the cross. We're all guilty. We all deserve the wrath of God. So Jesus comes. And there's two words. One of them you know. We use it a lot here. Is the word propitiation. Jesus comes and he absorbs God's wrath. So the wrath that you and I deserve, the wrath that it would take all of eternity for us to suffer, Jesus comes and at the cross, he absorbs that for you and I. Second word, expiation. He removes our sin. So propitiation, he absorbs God's wrath. Expiation, he removes sin. He cleanses us. He purifies us. The language in the Old Testament is that he gives us a new heart, a heart that loves him, a heart that desires him, a heart that wants to obey him. So that's what we have at the first coming of Christ. That he comes and dies on a cross, and it's only through his death and resurrection that our sins are forgiven, their sins are paid for, that we are made clean, that we are justified. There's no salvation apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. But interestingly, I don't think that's primarily what he's focusing on here in Malachi. Now again, they're inseparable, but I think he's really focusing on that we are to live pure and holy lives for God. You see, when Jesus saves us, it's for a purpose. It's that we would now be in obedience to him, that our life would be of worship. In verses 3 and 4, it, speak of, it speaks of God's people living righteously, worshiping God. We're told the sons of Levi will be refined like gold and silver. Likely, the sons of Levi are a way to referring to all of Israel or to refer to the, the priesthood of believers at this point. And we see then in verse 4 that all the offerings that God's people will, will bring to God will be pleasing to God. So as of work of this purifying work that God is going to do among his people. His people now love to worship him. And their worship, if you remember, in the beginning of Malachi, do you remember what kind of animals they're bringing? Blind, lame, sick, stolen animals, because God's not worthy of my blind, lame, sick animals. So I'll steal your blind, lame, and sick animal. And so they're bringing these horrible sacrifices that profane the name of God. But now, everything that they do pleases God and honors God. So that's where I think he's, he's mainly speaking, not only at the cross of Jesus Christ, but then through our lives, we now live lives that honor God. Think about, uh, this is what Titus chapter 2 says. Think about what it says about our salvation. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, 
to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Do you see the purpose? We're saved from this, so we live this way. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, so the cross, from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We are saved, we're redeemed, we are made holy, we are purified, so we would be holy and we would live pure lives. And as we live, God continues to refine us and make us into his image. Because we're told that when Jesus returns, we'll see him as he is. Why? Because we'll be made like him. So this means that the things that happen to us in this life are now the very means in which God makes us into his image. So I have one more passage, well maybe two more, two more passages. How does this happen? So 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So if you ever experience trials and you've been grieved by them, that's okay, that happens. Scripture says you, you might be grieved by some of the difficulties you've experienced. But then notice, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this, this is the point. God uses trials. Perfect. Oh, did you put that up there? You're such a weirdo. <sighs> Whatever. So here's the point. God uses trials. Suffering, pain, evil, sinfulness, difficulty, so that our faith would be refined and increase our joy and praise in the hope of Jesus Christ. So, just as God used the suffering of the cross to bring about salvation to the world, now he uses suffering as the means to purify your faith. So think about this. The very evil that we question God with, we now, because of Scripture, we see how he uses it. And now, it still grieves us as we experience it, as we see it, but we now have hope because we know there's a purpose in it. It's refining us. This means that your job, your families, the fights that we find ourselves in, politics, news, the very things that cause us anxiety, tragedy, suffering, disease, death of loved ones are all used to refine us and prepare us for his return. They're meant to display the futility of the pleasures of this world and display the all-satisfying joy and pleasure we have in Christ. That's what the trials we go through now. So just think about how that transforms Israel because of their unbelief, think God is gone and think he delights in justice or think that he delights in evil. But in reality, when we have a biblical understanding of Scripture, we see, no, God uses these trials, uses pain, uses the tragedies in this world in this mysterious, sovereignly divine way to now grow us in our faith so we'll be ready for the return of Christ, so we would live pure lives, so we would trust him rather than the things of this world. This is what, last, last Scripture, this is what Ephesians 4 says. Verses 1 and 2, it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So prepare yourself. 
If Jesus suffered, we should be ready to suffer. Now here's the reason. With the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now he's not saying we're perfect, but he's saying there's a point to the suffering, the things that we go through in this world. They're purifying us so that actually we would see how evil and horrible sin is. We would detest it all the more and we'd long to live the pure, holy lives for God. It's only when we're in the crucible, experiencing the heat of suffering, that we see with greater clarity the pleasures of God and the futility of the world. So let me, there's three reasons if you're a Christian, we can respond with hope in this world. Number one, we know that when Jesus returns, all sin will be judged. When you see evil, just be reminded there's a day coming. It's all going to be done. It will come to an end. The hourglass is almost there. And we just know it's, it's, it's coming to an end. And every moment, with every passing minute, we're coming closer to the return of Christ. Number two, we know we are forgiven and our sins have been paid in full at the cross. Your sin is either paid for at the cross or it's paid for in eternity in hell. And Jesus says, if you believed in me, then it's all dealt with at the cross and you have total joy looking forward to the return of Christ. Number three, we know God is not helplessly standing by, unable to present to prevent suffering and evil. Rather, he uses it in a mysteriously sovereign way that he would use it to increase our faith and increase our joy in him. He is not helplessly standing by trying to make the best of this world. He's governing it and ruling it and using all the things here to draw us to him. There's really only two days on our calendar, just as it was for Israel, this day and that day. We live today and we live in hope of the day that Christ is coming. So I ask you, are you ready for the return of Christ? Do you know that your sins have been forgiven? If you know that your sins are forgiven, then we, have, then we have a very similar role to John the Baptist. What was his role? Prepare the way for that day. What's our role? Prepare the way for that day, which means we come alongside believers, we encourage them, especially when we see them struggling, especially when we see tragedy strikes. We never pull away. We, ever, we always move towards them, reminding them of the truth of Scripture, and we move towards our unbeliever, unbelieving friends and neighbors and loved ones and co-workers that they would know the saving truth of Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming again. At his first coming, he provides salvation. At his second coming, he will gather all those who believed in him and judge those who have rejected him. God's response to evil is the judgment and salvation of Jesus Christ. We need to know that. Let me pray, and we'll take communion. Father, Father, we thank you that you respond to evil. You do not sit back. You are not helpless. But, Lord, you have a response, and your response is your Son, Jesus Christ. And, Lord, he has come so that by grace we would be saved. And, Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would know that truth, would love that truth, would have experienced the saving truth of your Son, Jesus Christ. Knowing that he died, knowing that three days later he rose, knowing that only in Jesus are our sins forgiven. And Lord, I pray that we would be so convicted of that, so convinced of that, 
that we'd go share your truth with this world. God, help us to share that truth. Give us a boldness. God, we know that on that day, your Lord, your word tells us in Revelation 7 that there will be people of every tribe, tongue, nation, language. Your gospel will go to every part of this world and it will win people to you. And so, Lord, use us. May we go out in confidence of the hope that your salvation brings. In your name, Jesus, amen.